The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Gawel. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three, two, one, and liftoff. Lift off. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors, from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds, are human acts of reclamation. That was according to the wishes of the descendant community. We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. Not so long ago, most culinary labor in India took place at the floor level, and it involved grinding, chopping, cleaning, and cooking meats, and sorting through grains and vegetables. Economic growth in India, however, came with changes in class status. The kitchen became a place to reflect this change, and elevation in status was literally mirrored by the action of elevating labor from the floor to the countertop. This was one step along the endless journey of creating modern, luxurious kitchens, which is now at its peak thanks to the worlds of Pinterest and Instagram. Now in contemporary India, to have two kitchens is not an uncommon middle and upper middle class aspiration. One for show and one where you, the elite owner of the house, just does not go. This is Bad Table Manners, a show that seeks to push the boundaries of food reporting and narrative in South Asia. I'm your host, Meher Verma. In this episode, we'll uncover a brief history of kitchen design in India with special attention to what economic liberalization, which peaked in the early 90s, did to the space. My two wonderful guests, the architect Madhav Rahman and Manju Sararajan, editor of a prominent design magazine, will guide us through the story. The title of this episode, A Dream of Two Kitchens, reflects the modern aspiration of multiple places to perform different types of culinary labor one seen and one unseen. But this dream has a more practical history too. 
Manchu tells us more while introducing us to the binary of the wet and dry kitchen. She shares how this pans out in the southern state of Kerala, where she's from. The concept of the wet and dry kitchen sort of comes out of our cooking culture because cooking culture in India is different depending on which state you're in, depending on geographies within the state even. Because we have so many communities and we cook very specific to the communities that we're from. So if I were to take the example of Kerala, for us, a lunch meal is not just one rice and one curry. It's a curry, it's a dry, it's vegetables, meats or fish, either a curry and a fried. So it's multiple things. Most of your work is in that preparation. It's in grinding masalas, it's in grinding lentils and rice for dosas. It's where you would cut your coconuts and grate your coconuts and do all of those kinds of things. Even in my kitchen, I rarely cook by myself. I've always got somebody with me that's helping me out. And so the spaces that you occupy for cooking has to take into consideration these multiple people because the components of a meal are also not simple. The amount of work that goes into preparation is what requires these two different areas. So you might do the final cooking, say, in the dry kitchen or in your show kitchen, but you might do all of your splatter work at the back so that this other one remains fairly clean. Remembering her grandmother's kitchen, Manju notes that this wet and dry binary also lined up with the caste and class divide. There would always be ladies who helped her with the grinding rice and grinding chilies, grinding spices. These were people from a lower caste. And I remember that there were rules about which entry point you could use. You couldn't come into the house from the front door. You had to come in through the back door to the kitchen. Your access was really only to the kitchen. And then different functions within that, the cleaning, the, the grinding, these were all split up by local women, usually of the lower castes. But today to get help, especially in the kitchen, is not easy. So I don't think people are as conscious of it. There are parts of the country where you would have only someone of your own caste actually cook the food. The actual making of the food would only happen by certain people of certain castes and perhaps other activities that didn't directly involve the actual preparation of the food could be people from other communities. Madhav Rahman is a Delhi-based architect and urbanist. He's the co-founder of Anagram Architects, a New Delhi-based award-winning multidisciplinary firm. Right from the get-go and throughout our conversation, Madhav asserted that given India's ethnic diversity, making generalizations about the Indian kitchen is a bad idea. Even when we talk about the globalized urban kitchen that tends to flatten out difference. Liberalization brought with it a big movement in the mid to late 90s, even going up to the early 2000s, where a lot of families moved to big cities because jobs brought them there. And in the middle-income groups, it basically meant that a lot of the regional cuisine came with these families. So there was a distinction between what was street food in the city and what was home-cooked food. There was a great diversity, you know. So in the late 90s, 2000s, Indian cities became quite cosmopolitan food culture-wise at home, not so much on the streets. They reflected the diversity of ingredients, right, from all over the country. So you'd kind of start off in some communities that were almost completely vegetarian. Then you'd see 
chicken as you travel towards the east of the country there would be a more preference for fish and pork and so on and so forth the early 90s in india was a time of economic liberalization and growth the project to modernize permeated both public and private realms the kitchen was no exception updating was a kind of national obsession and this accompanied a massive change in the relationship kitchens had to electricity power as electricity is more colloquially called in india literally and metaphorically transformed the kitchen families were really moving into these big cities into homes that were already built they weren't moving into new apartments they were on rent mostly so therefore there was this kind of confrontation between the specific region that that urban kitchen belonged to and the cuisine that the family brought to that kitchen from the region that they came from there's a lot of this kind of adaptation that comes with that confrontation while separately in various regions in the country little devices and tools and appliances really speaking electrical appliances had kind of evolved into a sort of more compact situation very often parts of the cooking process that were more heavy duty were kind of built into the kitchen kitchens were minimal on the counters and a lot more work happened in the center of the kitchen rather than on the periphery of it along the walls and therefore you'd see a lot of ad hoc arrangements and the requirement to plug and play a lot of appliances that came with the family so typically say a idli grinder dough grinding appliance that a south indian family would move into a north indian kitchen with and on the other hand perhaps you could consider high on heat and oil cooking that a north indian family would require to do on a pretty large scale on a pretty large counter in a south indian home before the 90s a lot of cooking in india used to happen on the floor liberalization brought an elevation at every level as things moved from ground to countertop and people moved from lower to middle to upper middle class and so on This also changed the way that socialization occurred in the kitchen as moving from floor to counter also meant a shift from communal to more individualized labor. If you kind of consider say something like the sink now in the traditional semi-urban regional home the home itself was a home for a larger family a joint family and therefore a lot of the cooking and the cleaning would happen at a very much larger scale. there would be a sort of communal labor around it whereas when these families moved into the bigger cities where space was at a premium and kitchens shrank one of the things that happened was the wet point became a sink that essentially had to be mounted on the counter that put some constraints on to the sizes of the vessels that could be washed and cleaned it also kind of ensured that it was only a one person job it kind of is indicative that this idea of cooking together or cooking being something that socially connects the family sort of evaporated post liberalization and you can see that in this movement from a larger shared floor space to a more individualistic countertop space the architectural totem of india's economic liberalization is perhaps the modern day builder flat These are essentially cookie-cutter apartments that are stacked on top of each other. Builder flats were meant to house the new kitchens of India, ideally one on every floor that was fitted with piped gas that replaced gas cylinders. And while the structure is ubiquitous now, it's a huge shift from the one large family kitchen 
that was often shared by several family members in the past. You see a lot of changes in maybe not what gets cooked, but how it gets cooked in Indian urban homes during the early to mid 2000s. This is not just to do with the ingredients and how you work them, but it's also got to do with, say, something like the gas that you supply to kitchen. So in the 90s, it was very much the story of a gas cylinder, kind of a metal container of gas that was quite heavy that needed to be lugged around and placed under the cooking range. But by 2005, as real estate made apartments grow taller and taller, gas started getting piped. So you'd start seeing external gas banks, which may or may not be gas banks of cylinders themselves, but essentially the apartment kitchen receiving piped gas. And so that sort of is a transformation that reflects how in India, people were really becoming more affluent, but the kitchens were becoming more uniform. And you just changed the way you cooked your regional cuisine in those homes. Around the 2000s, as modular kitchens became more commonplace, almost all culinary labour in Indian kitchens had moved to the countertop. This changed the way the kitchens were designed. Local carpenters also adapted and made their own interventions, And this was an interesting moment because it resisted the phenomenon of the cookie-cutter generic kitchen, which is something that we now associate more with the West. As Lucy Dearlove notes on her great podcast Kitchens, which is about kitchens in the UK, while other domestic spaces tended to be vastly different from each other and they varied from one house to the next, kitchens were the most replicated room in the house. But in India, thanks to local craftsmanship, The cabinetry, for example, was really customized and handmade, even if we consider it maybe less sophisticated than what we see with Scandinavian-inspired Indian kitchens now. The Indian demand for customization is so intense and normalized that even players like IKEA offer impressive made-to-order options when it comes to the Indian kitchen. As a fun exercise, I began customizing my own ideal kitchen on their website, And the extent to which a Swedish company was trying to imagine Indian cooking practices was pretty striking. How many spices we use and how often we use them, for example, all had to be taken into account. Manju tells me how this level of customization was non-negotiable for big business to enter India. When international brands first came to India, they were selling models and you could make a few changes here and there. But beyond a point, you couldn't really change that much and you were buying that. But as time has gone by, the brands have made a lot of different kinds of changes because we have certain catastrophes in mind uh, when it comes to the kitchen, right? We think we're going to pour hot water everywhere. We think we're going to splatter turmeric all over the place, oil. Um, I mean, and so products are really tested for these eventualities because we know that the runtime on a grinder needs to be a certain amount in order to get your chutney to a certain consistency. So what might work somewhere else might not work here because just the nature of how we cook and what we cook is just so different. Though it seems like a designer's hyper-precision that would get you to look at changing heights of countertops as indicative of sociocultural change or stagnancy, Madhav gets me to see the power of this insight. Even in the most modern Indian kitchens, it turns out, the relationship an owner will have to domestic labour ends up dictating how the kitchen looks and how it's going to be used. 
In most middle and upper middle class homes, the cook is either part or full time, and the labor that he or she provides is still integral to kitchen design. In India, because it was very much a more joint family, so many kind of sub families living together, kitchens were larger. The quantity of food being cooked was much greater, and mostly the larger, more affluent Indian homes usually had on retainer a family cook. and these were kind of linked to feudal systems in society and therefore along with the cook was the cook's family who would provide de facto labor in the kitchen along with the cook but post liberalization the kitchens became smaller the families became more nuclear a lot of cooking was done by young families themselves with a fair bit of assistance because remember it's not just the affluent who are urbanizing from rural india to urban india the large amount of population in the city is actually the rural poor becoming the urban poor the urban poor is what supplies labor to the informal urban labor market from which urban india draws its part time cook so most middle income houses would invest in getting the services of a part time cook so that at least at a basic level food could be prepped or even a couple of meals could be cooked and the amount of labor in the kitchen that the families themselves put in reduced drastically what this did was that as affluence grew and the idea of a kitchen becoming a more social space for the family and the folks they had over to entertain there became a split in the kitchen you very much had a front of house kitchen and a back of house kitchen i find it super interesting to explore how the continued dependence on traditional labor intersects with the lifestyleification of the indian kitchen a phenomenon we can thank the worlds of pinterest and instagram for i asked madhav when the idea of the kitchen as a place of performance peaked and how this altered our imagination of domestic culinary labor how do we now negotiate the demand for cooking indian food with all its aromas and oil splatters with our need to now showcase instagrammable trophy cabinets yeah so it's really a bit of a double whammy you know we are really in the thick of things both with uh, instagram and the pandemic induced uh, enthusiasm for home cooking so you know you see this kind of perfect storm of both these things happening to cooking in indian kitchens today i guess really it's the affluent younger folks and younger families who are you know it's the kind of folks who have spent some time abroad perhaps studied there understood in those american and european kitchens that cooking could be a social activity to be shared with your guests as a kind of a gesture of hospitality and so therefore you very much see off fronting of the kitchen aesthetic and therefore a lot more attention to what that should look like and what that should connote about you and therefore you have a fair bit of thought going into what the kitchen looks like but a part of it so there's a certain part of the kitchen that relies still on labor on hire to come in and do a part of the cooking or the regular cooking and it's the special meals that are in the kitchen that is forefronted I wondered about whether there was any resistance to embracing the modern indian kitchen that madhav may have noted especially what it did to the placement of the fridge which has gone through an interesting shift of its own when i signed a lease for an apartment in 2020 that was built at the turn of the millennium 
I found no place for the fridge in the kitchen. I thought this was a little bizarre, but not so long ago, it was quite normal to have a fridge like a family member standing close to the dining table. In fact, a fridge full of mangoes and sodas that you could reach into while watching TV with the TV also being in the living room was quite defining of middle-class leisure. What was being consumed was collective, or at least in view. But then, with the allure of the modular, both architecture and socialization changed. This fridge anecdote led me to do some further research. I came across an article in The Guardian that was titled, quote, Invisible Fridges and Cooling Cubbies, How Kitchens Have Been Designed for the Rich, end quote. It spoke about visible gadgets as kind of gauche. Concealment, it said, spelt status. And it showed that high, high status is apparently being signaled by the disappearance of gadgets altogether, especially refrigerators, because it indicates that you can eat fresh, ideally farmer's market bought food every day. Nothing needs to be frozen. But this article was written for a North American and European context. I asked Madhav about the dynamics of visibility and invisibility in the modern Indian kitchen. Like, what's a sexy kitchen locally? It's in the 2010s, 2015s, the early 2010s, is where you see this big advent of modular kitchen companies coming into India from Europe and America and selling kitchens as products. And that's really when kitchens started becoming sleeker and sexier, really. And, you know, so that's when you start seeing a lot of really highly engineered hinges and sliders and rails and soft shut panels and recessing hardware. So you kind of saw this really highly industrialized, high precision, knocked together, very minimal, very plastic finished, steel finished kitchen coming in really by the 2015s. And now the thing is that these kitchens don't really take to wear and tear really well. And so what's interesting is that urban home that had a part-time cook or basically since you had someone coming home and providing you the service of cooking you a meal or cooking part of your meal, there became this question of trust. And that is that you'd see that the fronted kitchen, the kitchen that was up front, was sleeker, was used more by the family members, in a sense to cook, to perform the sociabilities of being a home. Whereas the slightly more labor-intensive work, especially the washing of the dishes and the cleaning of things like rice and vegetables would happen in a part of the kitchen that was reasonably low specification or that part of the kitchen would invariably be specced down. I wondered whether Madhav felt any nostalgia for the way kitchens used to be. His response I find pretty amazing as he explains how the aspirational modern kitchen ideally makes room for everything, including the production of nostalgia. So long as it also allows for the production of a Korean meal, which you may temporarily have an urge to make one fine day. You do see a sort of almost like a pendulum swings between yearnings for nostalgia and tradition. And on the other hand, you're also blasted by global cuisine through all these various media. And therefore, suddenly you may want to have a stab at Korean cooking or something quite as exotic as that here in India. 
it's also tying up to the fact that a lot of appliances are now being delivered home through aggregators and you're not really going and shopping for them in stores anymore. So it's really possible to kind of miniaturize various forms of cooking into devices that are handheld and occupy lesser space on the counter. And that's what allows people now flexibility in their kitchen to swing from a very nostalgic traditional cuisine, like a home cooked meal, like mommy would make it all the way to the French meal that you saw on some cooking show on someone's Instagram. Many, many times in our conversation, Madhav reminded me that it's very hard to generalize an Indian kitchen as there are many different tastes, income levels and preferences in India as there are people. Still, there are some common aspirations that people tend to gravitate towards when it comes to creating their own dream kitchen. For all the diversity, there are many things in the urban Indian kitchen that you can find in common across the country. For example, take the chimney. That's something that's a common feature to most middle-income, upper-income urban homes in India today. And there's a lot of quality to price consciousness on that particular appliance. And the makers of these products spend a fair bit of time trying to design what these chimneys end up looking like, you know, whether they have lights integrated or not and so on and so forth. Earlier, Manju and I had talked about how caste and particular ethnic beliefs manifest themselves in even the most modern of Indian kitchen designs. When I discussed this with Madhav, he reminded me that Vastu which he really nicely describes as a science that represents the intersection between cosmology and architecture, still remains a hugely important part of contemporary Indian kitchen design. Vastu can actually determine even the most minute details, like where your sink should go. Those who are unfamiliar with the Indian context sometimes might think of this as a little bizarre, but I know of at least a few cases where people have torn down their super expensive designer kitchens because they realized that according to Vastu, things were a little off. Madhav tells me more, and once again, I am reminded that in India, modernity works not in opposition to traditional beliefs, but very much in dialogue with them. It is in the format of certain rules and principles about locating various things like the hot point of the kitchen, the wet point of the kitchen. And so you find right through the late 90s, the, the 2000s, 2010s, even now there's a great requirement for kitchens to be as such vastu, compliant to those rules. And uh, this is something that in a sense has now been woven into the reality of many kitchens, even though there is, I have to admit it's not uniform. Certain communities and certain regions have a greater preference for vastu compliance but it's generally there as an undercurrent in most Indian kitchens, at least most Hindu Indian kitchens. Our conversation moves to the future of Indian kitchen design. I'm curious to where it stands in relationship to all evidence that globally, AI will take over domestic spaces if it hasn't already. But once again, bringing this back to the Indian context, we speculate that innovation will not erase the Indian dependency on household labor. Innovation will probably move along with it. I don't think the smartness that enters the kitchen will be labor-saving as much as it will be time-saving or essentially just more engaging. And the reason is that I think as an urban culture, we are still very much a home-eating culture in urban India. 
unlike let's say in Singapore or towards East Asia, Southeast Asia, where the idea of street food being part of your regular meal habits hasn't really taken root in India to that extent. But people do rely a lot more on home cooked meals. And so I feel that AI and machine learning, when it enters Indian kitchens, it'll actually essentially be looking at enriching your personal cooking experience rather than trying to reduce the labor of cooking. It'll essentially help you diversify the cooking a lot more. Turning back to my conversation with Manju, I wanted to talk more about her kitchen in her home in Kotayam, a tiny village in Kerala, which I have personally spent some time in. It produces so much food, literally what I would consider a series of feasts. At both lunch and dinner and breakfast, six to eight dishes comprising of seafood, vegetables, rice dishes, yogurt, would literally appear as if it was the most normal thing on earth. When I visited, I peeked into the kitchen a few times as a curious guest. But only now did we talk about the gendered labor that underpins these spreads. If I looked at my own upbringing, and I grew up in Dubai with a working mother, she didn't have a whole lot of time to cook and she didn't really have a lot of help. But even for us, lunch meant a fried fish, rice, a curry, and one, if not two, vegetables. But the good thing is that, for instance, the fish curry, which is a staple of households like ours, the fish curry is something that's almost like a pickle. You know, it's, it's cooked in a broth of just fiery red chili powder and local tamarind. So this is something that you could keep for five or six days. So it's not something that you need to make every single day and it gets better as you keep it for a couple of days. But for most people, even at the simplest, I would say that there's definitely at least three components, excluding the rice and including rice, four components to a meal. And the rest could be, you know, some yogurt and some pickles and papadums and things like that. But this is also part of the reason why you find that a lot of households now, especially with working women, you don't have the time and you don't have the patience to go through all of that. So often people will keep these meals perhaps for the weekend because it's not possible today, but there are also options today. But when I was growing up, this was standard fare, even if it was a working mother who was producing that meal. The Pinterestization of Indian Kitchen a phenomenon that I discussed with Madhav, was perhaps inevitable. But what really accelerated things was the pandemic. This was a time when many upper-middle-class women found themselves cooking for the first time, which also made them view their kitchens in a different way for the first time. Manju tells me more. Indian interior design has definitely been influenced today very heavily by Pinterest boards and international design and, and certainly by American kitchen design, for sure. Because if you look at images, old images of Indian kitchens, I mean, we have always been a very practical, utility-minded people, especially because for more than a century, that is all we could really focus on. We have this period of time where design just didn't evolve, especially during the colonial period. So we sort of really had this very, very basic view of bathrooms and kitchens. 
But today, these spaces have become flamboyant exhibitionist spaces because, of course, we are, all of us, influenced by what's happening in design around the world. Now, if you look at what that means in terms of functionality, partly it goes back to the idea that women who can afford to usually will hire somebody to do the cooking and cleaning. Especially if you are working, our homes are run that way. And because in India, obviously, there are people that you can still relatively afford to have either part-time or full-time help for these functions. So the show kitchen tends to be the space where I'm just going to sort of potter and put a few crudettes together. And the actual service kitchen is where the staff are actually making everything. Now... One of the biggest upheavals that have happened in Indian design is the corona epidemic. Because what happened in 2020 was we had a lockdown declared overnight and it completely blocked off your staff from being able to even get to you the next day to be able to do the things that actually made a house run. So you woke up one morning and and the people that you really relied on to run your house were no longer there. So for the first time in so many decades, people were having to go into the kitchen and actually cook for themselves. And I remember that this was the thing that exhausted everyone (laughs) the most. So here you were sort of balancing your online Zoom meetings, your kids schooling, and then having to create these meals, which I can <laughs> I can attest that most women, it was very difficult. So that has really changed. I mean, I've been speaking to designers and the Sleek Kitchen brand, which is part of Asian Paints, and they're all saying that people are now very much interested in thinking about the kitchen as a space that they themselves will occupy. The two things that happened, one, that people were having to make food themselves, that men, I mean, this is another thing that everyone points out, Indian men had to cook, which we think of as this big cultural shift because men were never expected to do it. With this new open plan kind of kitchen becoming more and more the symbol of upper class mobility and the reality of Indian kitchen design and a pandemic inflicted world, did the wet and dry binary that we talked about earlier just collapse? I asked Manju to tell me more. In the urban context, especially, I think one of the things that people are saying has happened is that people have become a bit more open to the idea of an open kitchen. I had an open kitchen in Bombay a decade ago, and I remember every single person who came would be like, oh my God, how do you function in this space? Because the two elements of cooking that mark our our cooking, as it were, are oil splatters and smells. (laughs) So anything you do from a company perspective or a brand perspective, anything you do in the kitchen needs to deal with these two things, right? You need to deal with smells and you need to deal with oil splatters. And to ensure that people weren't disturbed by these things, our kitchens were always hidden away. But now people are talking about and are open to it. One, of course, because technology exhausts, technology has just gotten that much better. So in this fantasy of a kitchen that is fit for sociality and performance, what kind of food is ideally being cooked? Like in an Indian kitchen where the cabinets might come from Sweden, should, let's say, the dal too be served with something like quinoa, rather than plain old rice to fit the bill. 
I asked to what extent this idea of the global means to permeate the actual cooking. I'm asking with a touch of humor, of course, but I find this worthy for the exercise and imagination that we're pursuing. I always joke to my children that, you know, one day in the future, you'll be sitting in some country somewhere and you'll ache for torin and rice and fish curry <laughs> because you won't have access to it. So our whole way of functioning is completely different, but I'm not one to romanticize that because I think all of the onus of keeping up all our culture and tradition often falls on women. Now, if I do not have the time in the afternoon to sit and make curries and make the coconut base of the torrent and all of that, it's because I'm working and I'm happy with that trade-off <laughs> because you do it for special occasions. You do it for your festivals. You do it for your weekends because you want to take the time. So I think it's not necessarily just the loss of culture in our food per se. I think we've just can't unlearn what you've learned and your experiences are different. You've grown up in different ways. You travel just changes you. And I think that's fine. I think simplifying our food, adapting it to the way that you live and making it easier for us to sort of have those flavors, but perhaps through infusions like quinoa, upma or things like that. While Manju and Madhav were speaking about innovations in Indian kitchen design, I was observing that regardless of advancements being made, the assumption is that the family remains a fixed stable unit. Most kitchen design assumes that people have a spouse, if not kids. So I ask, what room does the modern Indian kitchen make for people who don't fit into heteronormative ways of living? The short answer is that even if there's now a type of kitchen for this non-heteronormative individual, little thinking has gone into the way that they would actually use the space. Actually, a couple of years ago, there was a kitchen configuration that Sleek had called the Soloist which was really meant for a single person. Do we do a lot of design innovation based on people living alone? I don't think we do as much yet. We should be because that is how, you know, most people are living. But we are in India largely obsessed with the family. I think now, again, post-2020, this is something that I think brands are going to have to look again at the single-person home because the same set of circumstances were true for them as well. You normally, you wake up in the morning, you leave home and you come back and you go to sleep. And when you come back, you usually your part-time maid would have come in and cooked something and that's what you eat and you turn in. But in 2020, all of these people were having to figure out how to cook for themselves. Also because offices haven't completely opened yet. So people are still largely now working from home. So I think this is, again, a category that, that brands need to start looking at. I wonder somewhere whether Indian kitchen design and design in general is being taken a little too seriously, perhaps. But Manju, a lover of design through and through, reminds me why it's important to embrace this. I welcome it because one of the things that I've been watching happening in the Indian design space in these last 10, 12 years that I've been in it is that at the highest end, you have homes that have nothing to do with the people that inhabit them. Homes are representations of a designer's aesthetic, not the actual way of functioning of a family. I've watched this Pinterest board come alive all over the country in different formats. 
and i'm really hopeful that now because people were forced to be in their houses and really look around and say hey you know what i love kabusier design but are my children going to be comfortable sitting there for a long time should i be concerned about an antique chair in my space when my kids are going to be bouncing off the walls how do i want to live do i want to live in a furniture gallery or do i want to live in a comfortable space do i want to be able to put up my feet am i the kind of person who puts up my feet i ended my conversation with manju with an old school fun question the trope of the deserted island lives on she tells me about the three things that she would take with her if she was stranded on one from her answer i feel like she's thought of this before cuz she's not just got three items at the ready she's even got a hierarchy mixer grinder for sure for me also a really good set of knives because it just makes your life easier and just the experience of preparation much easier because i don't like the preparatory part of cooking so that and a cast iron pan for me but mixer grinder is is number 1 i just discovered the old sumit brand has become sujata i didn't realize that sumit wasn't there anymore but i had run through so many different brands of mixer grinders and and it's all blown up on me i hope you've enjoyed this micro history of kitchen designs in india maybe it'll give you some ideas for your new space or if you're ever in the position of designing or redesigning your kitchen you might consider some of these aspects or maybe now when you walk into a modern indian kitchen you'll see a history that may have led to this which is often masked by the hyper-sleek cabinets and smart technology either way i hope that you like me might have seen that by uncovering what led to our kitchens looking like they do now we can understand a lot about class identity and politics in india This episode is possible because of all the people who work behind the scenes. I'd like to thank my producer Jennifer O'Neill, co-script editor Vidya Balachander, audio editor Evan Lenzi, researchers Julia Fine and Carolyn Crosby, and intern Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Westone founder Stephen Satterfield, Westone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glasier, sound engineer Max Kodolchuk, associate producer Quentin Lebo, and sound intern Simon Livendar. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about bad table manners at whetstoneradio.com. <laughs>